0: Have you ever wondered what heaven is going to be like? Many people have, and for good reason. It's a place in which we expect to be free of suffering and sorrow and reunited with our loved ones, among other things. So it's very natural to dream about it, to want to know what it's going to be like. Uh, But here's the surprising thing. We actually know a great deal about what it's going to be like. Uh, The usual assumption is that heaven is a place radically different from earth. Uh, far away and bearing little or no resemblance to the world in which we now live. Most have heard that for uh, most of our lives and probably take it for granted. And given the prevalence of this sort of picture, you'd expect there to be a great deal of biblical support for it. Uh, But surprisingly, that's not really the case. In fact, the Bible describes our future destination as not really so much a destination at all. It's here on this earth that we now inhabit. God's plan isn't to take us away and decimate the current world. Rather, Scripture teaches us that he intends to restore this world to what he created it to be. In other words, rather than bringing us up to heaven, he's planning to bring heaven down to earth. He's planning to bring about a new creation, which, uh, by which is meant a restored creation, healed from the death and suffering that human sin has wreaked upon it. Remember what John saw in his great vision in Revelation? He didn't see Christians going up to heaven. Rather, he saw, quote, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bridegroom adorned for her husband. And he tells us that he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his temple, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. You all know that Jesus was sometimes called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there's a reason that he was named God with us and not us with God. God didn't come to bring earth to heaven, rather, he came in order to bring heaven to earth. Heaven is where God's presence dwells, and he intends to bring his presence to the creation that he made in order to restore it and redeem it. Now, of course, when our loved ones go to be with the Lord in the present time, they certainly are in heaven, safe in our Father's arms. But the astonishing claim of Scripture is that things are going to get even better. God is going to give us resurrected bodies, free from all sickness and pain and suffering, and place us back on a healed earth that is entirely free of sorrow. We have an amazing future waiting for us, a world that's much like this one, only without sin and death and pain, a world that's overflowing with God's love. As Isaiah tells us, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God is going to flood the world with his love. So we can be confident that our departed loved ones are right now rejoicing in God's presence, but we can also look forward to being reunited with them in the glorious new heavens and new earth that God is going to create. Now today, we're going to ask ourselves a somewhat odd question, but one that has an interesting answer. Why did God decide to do it that way? Why not just take us up to heaven and wipe away this present world? When we put this question to ourselves, it turns out that the answer has important implications for the way that we're supposed to live our lives. It changes the way that we're supposed to think about this world that we now inhabit and the way that we're supposed to act in this world. So why isn't God just going to obliterate the present world and take us all up to heaven? The first reason is that if he did, it would mean that he had failed. He had failed in his project of creating a good world, failed to keep it from being destroyed by human sin. And so he had to abandon the world that he made and withdraw us to some other place. That would mean that we humans and our sin are bigger than God. We have the ability to make the world so bad that God can't do anything to fix it. So he has to jump ship and bring with him as many humans as he possibly can. But that's not the God we see in scripture. Rather, when human beings sin, God deals with it rather than providing an escape from it. He sent Jesus down to die for our sins and that saved us from the guilt that would have led to eternal punishment. But that punishment wasn't the only consequence of sin that God had to deal with. The entirety of creation was subjected to decay and corruption because of human sin. After Adam sinned, God cursed the ground because of him. And Romans tells us that all of nature was condemned to corruption because of this sin. So unless God dealt with that, he would have failed to take care of the whole sin problem. He would have done so only in part. Wiping out the whole creation, in other words, wasn't the answer. Just like wiping out humankind wasn't the answer. Again, that kind of destruction would just have been God's confession that he couldn't fix the world that he'd made, that he had to destroy it instead. And that is most certainly not the God of the Bible. The God that we know is one who holds all things in his hands, who's sovereign over all of his creation, and for whom nothing is impossible. He intends to make all things new because he, and not we, or sin or death, is in control of the world that he made. The fact that God is making this world new is his way of saying that he, the creator of all, will not be foiled in his plans by human sin. In the end, God wins. Now that should bring us great comfort because it's our promise that God is going to take care of us no matter what. When he starts something, he sees it to completion. He doesn't abandon it when things get messy. So if we wonder whether he'll really come through for us despite our many sins, and if we wonder whether he'll really forgive us for all of our wrongdoing, we can remind ourselves that God is not a God who gives up. He perseveres until he finally restores what he created in the first place. His love reaches to the heavens and his forgiveness is boundless. Now, listen to the promise that he makes to us and a remarkable passage in Hosea. It's one of the most moving moments in the entire Bible, actually. And it's a little long, but it's worth reading the whole thing. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called them, the more they went away from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught them to walk. I took them up in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I lifted them like infants to my cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Israel? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Israel, for I am God and no mortal the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In other words, because God is God and not a mere human being, he won't abandon what he started just because it goes wrong. He heals what's wounded. He fixes what is broken and does whatever it takes to make things right. Even if it means sacrificing himself to bring about this reconciliation, which is, of course, exactly what he did. So you can rest secure in the knowledge that if you return to God, he will in no way abandon you. And indeed that he is already with you, imploring you to return to him. The promise of new creation of a restored heavens and earth is a promise to us that God will see us through to the end. As Paul tells us in Romans, I am convinced That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first reason that he's not just going to abandon the world that he created and take us to heaven, but rather is going to restore the world that he created and bring heaven down to earth. Destroying this world would mean uh, just that he'd failed. But there's more to the story than that. There's another reason that's important to notice. The other reason that he plans to rescue his whole creation is made clear by the words of the psalmist. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and has compassion over all that he has made. In other words, Although human beings occupy a very special place in God's creation as the bearers of his image, God doesn't just care about humans. He cares about everything he made. As Jesus tells us, there isn't a sparrow that falls to the ground without God knowing, without him being pained in his heart at the death of one of his precious creatures. He feels every bit of suffering that this world endures. He knows not only the pain of human beings, but also the pain of everything that his hands have so lovingly made. Indeed, that's part of the meaning of the cross. When Jesus was crucified, he took all of our sorrows upon himself. On the cross, he felt every drop of suffering that that his creation had experienced because of sin, and he died in order to put an end to that suffering once and for all. That's why God intends to make everything new, to restore the creation that he made. He loves it, and he intends to save it, to redeem it from the death that we human beings have brought upon it. Salvation, in other words, isn't just about us. Salvation is about the whole world that God made. It's about the redemption and restoration and rescue of each of his creatures from the smallest to the greatest all life is in his hands, hands that heal and make whole, not destroy. The prophet Isaiah gives a glimpse to us of this future when he writes the following. I, God, am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there, shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out their lifetime. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the serpent, its food will be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The future that God has planned for us is one that involves all of creation. It involves peace with all of the creatures that he has made and which have suffered so deeply at the hands of humankind. Finally, we'll have the relationship with God's creation that he wanted us to have all along, one of loving care, peacefully living alongside all that God has made. Now, you might think, well, God created us to have dominion over the animals, didn't he? Well, sure he did. But what kind of dominion was it supposed to be? If we're made in God's image, then the dominion that we have over the animals should reflect the sort of rule that he has over his world. And how does God act toward his creation? Well, he certainly doesn't wreak havoc and destruction on it, bringing suffering on creatures that are innocent of wrongdoing, as the animals are, for example. Rather, he gently cares for his lambs like a shepherd. He doesn't kill, but rather raises back to life. God's dominion over this earth, which we are supposed to reflect in our rule over creation, is one of tender, compassionate love. He keeps his eye even on the smallest of his creatures and cares when they fall to the ground. We human beings are called to have dominion like that. We're called to care for the world that God has entrusted to us, not to exploit it and use it for our own ends, disregarding the rest of creation in order to serve our own interests and desires. I mean, can you imagine if God acted toward us the way that we human beings have so often acted toward the rest of his world? Can you imagine if he just used and abused us, taking advantage of us and destroying us for sport? If that's not the God that you know, if that's nothing like the way that God acts toward this world, then it's not the way that we should act either. Because we are stamped with God's own image. Instead, we should do what he does, which is wiping away the tears from the eyes of his creatures, healing them and showering them with his love. Now, you might think that all of that is a very nice idea, but there's no way it could possibly happen until everything is made new, until the new Jerusalem comes to earth and God brings in the new creation. But for Christians, that just isn't going to work. As Paul says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. In other words, the work of new creation has already been begun. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is transforming us day by day into the human beings that we were made to be, slowly revealing the image of God in which we were first created. And that means that we can't just wait for the new heavens and the new earth in order to start acting the way that we were made to be. We have to start now. If we really bear God's image, then we are called to exercise the sort of dominion over the earth that God has. The more the Holy Spirit dwells within us, the more we should be mirrors of God's love to the creation because that's what the Spirit is making us to be. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul tells us exactly what it's supposed to look like to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and to reflect God's image. He writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, Paul doesn't say that those qualities are supposed to be exercised toward human beings only. We're supposed to act that way towards every single part of the world that God has made and for which he made us. We're supposed to love all of his creation to be kind and gentle and patient and compassionate and loving with them, to live in peace with all creatures, great and small. Now, let me be clear. This isn't hippie talk. This is Bible talk. It's not some quacky liberal environmentalist stuff. This is God stuff. This is what God made us to be. Now, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was himself very concerned about this. In one of his great sermons, he wrote the following. The knowledge that God loves his creatures so deeply and one day will liberate them from their present bondage to death and corruption should encourage us to imitate him whose mercy is over all of his works. It should soften our hearts to these creatures, knowing that the Lord cares for them. It should enlarge our hearts toward these poor creatures to think that, although they appear of so little account in our eyes, not one of them is forgotten in the sight of our Father in heaven. Through all the suffering to which they're now subjected, let us look to what God has prepared for them. Let us habitually look forward beyond this present time of bondage to the happy time when they will be delivered by God into freedom with us. That's the words of John Wesley. So church... If we live by the Spirit, then let's be guided by the Spirit. Let us live in love toward all the works of God's hands, all of the creatures that have been put in your charge by your Maker. He hears the sound of their groaning, and he will not simply look away when those he created to reflect his love instead bring destruction. There's no creature's voice that doesn't reach his ears, and there's none that he will not answer in due time. So then, let us rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, in the promise of the new creation that God is going to bring to this earth. Let's look forward to being reunited with our loved ones in restored and redeemed bodies, on a restored and redeemed earth, to rejoicing in God's love forever and ever with the rest of his creation. And let us now live as the image bearers that God made us to be, Let us not forget that his eye is on the sparrow, that he sees and knows every bit of suffering that we and all the rest of his creation goes through, and that we are called to bring healing and love to all that he has made. Let's bow our heads and pray. Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, creator and sustainer of all life, we rejoice in the hope of the new creation that you are going to bring to our world. We take courage knowing that you don't abandon what you started, that you see it to completion and bring it to perfection. We ask that you would fill our hearts with compassion and love for all of your creatures, reflecting the compassion and love that you have on all that you have made. Gracious God, fill us with all of your fullness. Make us overflow with the mercy that you have shown to us, Redeem us from our slavery to sin and bring us safely to the day of the resurrection. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.